Miss Macintosh, my darling, chapter 27. Oh, why were these ancient people always so involved, turning forever and forever upon the same spiral problems themselves, I wondered, and why could my beautiful mother never see the sunlight, the living sunlight of actuality, and why instead of acknowledging her situation and facing it, must she imagine that she was someone else, perhaps Catherine the Great sleeping in a bed with pillars of twisted amethyst, or that she was listening to an intricate dialogue between a swan-necked Chinese mandarin and a French clown whose head was a church steeple, neither of whom understood the other's language, yet though a perfect understanding existed between them. Why must she interrupt addressing a remark to someone who was not there? Mr. Spitzer, unlike my mother, whose pleasures never dimmed, was aware of most of his difficulties, perhaps of even more than my mother or Mr. Spitzer realized, as he would sometimes innocently acknowledge, his head nodding as my mother slept, for he was never immunized by any drug, and all the unreal things that happened to him were real and monstrous threats, disturbing the course of his pacific, pacific existence. Every experience, even that which he had not been aware of, had left its trace. There was always some right in what my mother said, even when she was wrong. Her mind distilled by the juices of languorous poppy flowers, which gave to her these perennial essences of thought, running from year to year, or recurring over a long period, even as a perennial joke caused by her consummate lack of faith. Indeed, it was this lack of faith which made all things possible to her. Left to his own abstruse Abstruse devices, certainly Mr. Spitzer would never have stirred outside his own doorway, and no report could then have been made of his activities, and my mother would have been mystified, not enjoying her present sense of omniscience. Undoubtedly, he would have been quite secretive, as taciturn as he had always wished to be, and seldom would have expressed himself. He felt it extremely burdensome to place himself, as a matter of fact, in the world of competitive women and men, he preferring his own isolation and sense of distance and curious neutrality. Why was the dying spirit in a hollow house? Who was the wind? He would not so much disagree with the phantasmagoric facts which my mother always insisted she had resurrected concerning his present life, his mysterious goings and comings, as with the perverse interpretation which she placed upon them, her assistance, for example, that minor details were of major importance, the major events were of no importance, for it was she who was isolated, she who lay still among old, frothing laces and stained satin waves and wilted rosebuds and faded candlelight, which half revealed, shadows which half concealed her beautiful, lively, and passive face. She who might imagine what she would and find nothing more than she imagined, or many things exceeding imagination, or only that which pleased her in the empty hours. Those devoid even of Mr. Spitzer's company. He who moved like a dead man walking in the difficult, indifferent world of rival interests and cruel delays, and who knew too well, though he continued his, this mortal struggle, the uselessness of struggling now at this late date for human recognition, the paucity of lost events and lost loves which controlled his every present thought or step. He went out only for business purposes, and nothing of world-shaking importance had ever happened to him, and the details were always trivial, and many of this practical transact many of his practical transactions had no bearing at all upon present realities, and that was why he preferred the Pythagorean harmonies, the muffled planetary voices, the music of the silent spheres in a world which should come after this, and even my mother's company, and even the company of Mr. Chandelier. And an evening away from my mother was always a very real deprivation to him. Though she surrounded him with many incalculable hazards, his hazards 
were much greater in the world he visited when he did not visit her. She continually reminded him, she continually reminding him by her eternal derision who he was or who he was not, and he was prone to forget. His life, which should be continuous, was intermittent. He knew his deficiencies in respect to his self-concern and to his own personal memory, the aggregate of lost impressions, his fugitive thoughts, even that he was likely to walk through a wall of shimmering glass or forget the purpose of his immediate journey, practical or impractical, that he was likely to take the wrong train, get off at the wrong city, the wrong station, the wrong star, though he was painfully accurate, of course, and covered with exact reminders to himself, in case he should ever be found, even as the altered visage of himself, he should be recognized, he hoped, by his flowing cape of darkness, and by his various, various paraphernalia, his high silk hat and black necktie and rosebud with maiden hair, the numerous calling cards he always carried on his person, an outdated passport for a journey he had not taken, had not thought of taking, and also, of course, for he would sooner have gone unclothed than have stepped forth without it, a scroll or sheet of the silent music, or perhaps several abandoned beginnings, mere preludes, perhaps several tentative endings, mere epilogues to the great body of his uncreated work, unfinished epithalamiums and dirges and vast recessionals to be sung during the recession of the clergy and choir from the chancel to the robing rooms, notes for the voiceless choirs, for the tongueless nightingales, for the deaf listeners. Thus should he ever show up in a city morgue among the drowned women and the fallen men, the poor brothers, all men should know that he had not been his brother, that his brother had not been Mr. Spitzer, that this life had been this illusion even before his death. There would be no more tormenting to a man of his precise certainties, these uncertainties, which were not his own, these cloud-like apparitions in his devious path, these dim street lamps shining through fog, these spectral shapes and whirling leaves, for he would be dead, not remembering himself, forgetting Perone, too, as if he had never existed, and perhaps even my mother would have forgotten Mr. Spitzer, her evening caller, time healing, he believed, all wounds, even the wounds of time, even his when he had disappeared, when his eyes no more gleamed in starlight. In the meantime, to any engagement other than his evenings with my mother, who so often ignored him in favor of God knew whom, he would come, it always seemed, too early, or else there would be inexplicable delays, shifting of scenes, alterations of places, sudden snowstorms or unexplained summers. Light where there had been darkness, darkness where there had been light, laughter where there had been silence. And this, though he frequently consulted his jeweled watch, timing his steps which were difficult to time. Indeed, if my mother did not interrupt him to make some irrelevant remark, such as that there were storks' nests on the rooftops and long-limbed storks drifting through clouds, he would sometimes add that it was, as a matter of fact, his dead brother's wristwatch which he wore, the crystal unbroken as his dead brother, thus destroying, in some people's minds, the hypothesis of an impulsive, thoughtless suicide, had most thoughtfully removed his timepiece before jumping like a wild horse. Why should his brother have owned such a fine timepiece? Any old silver dollar stopwatch should have done for him, a man of blatant tastes, a man who had worn loud checks a man impatient with the idea of eternity for which he had no time, a man who preferred careless associates, low company, lapsed souls, void characters, dice rattlers, and active nights and days, a man who had laughed at Mr. Spitzer's silence, but he had left among his unwanted possessions this accurate, fine timepiece, this which, this which marked, now on Mr. Spitzer's trembling wrist, the course of the inaccurate planets, the recurring years, the unknown flow of time, 
the backward flow, seasons, days, hours, half-minutes, quarter-minutes, seconds as of a hair's breadth, every conceivable departmentalization, and yet Mr. Spitzer must lose his way, fighting against a great undertow of timelessness, searching through time for that which was already lost in space, as undoubtedly almost any fool could tell him. Almost any fool, including himself, could tell him that there was no time, that it was all this artifice, even like my poor mother's opium dreams of life and love and death, or her dream of some great coffin of stars which might contain the body of her love. Yet this elegant watch was a convenient timepiece for a poor lawyer, a poor musician, dealing with the flow of time. The groupings of beats or pulses into equal measures, accelerated or delayed, so old Joachim always thoughtfully wore it, mindful of the fact that his own identical watch was that which was broken, that it had stopped long ago, its wheels rusted, its delicate mechanism being clogged with dust, its crystal shattered into a thousand pieces, probably several days after his brother's death, or perhaps several days before. Mr. Spitzer had forgotten, for he had been, it was true, in a state of shock, negating memory in any personal sense. Perhaps while walking along the sidewalk under a light snowfall, he had fainted and fallen at about the time of his brother's death, perhaps through sympathy, for they had always suffered, except for this final accident, the same accidents, one not falling unless the other fell. Mr. Spitzer had found this broken watch again only recently, stuck behind some bottles and scrolls in the crystal dust on his dressing table, pale as the gleaming of a marine eye, and had begun to wear, wear it under his cuff on his left wrist as a reminder to him that his brother's life had been brief, that all that life which Mr. Spitzer attributed to him now was only his imagination, as when he heard a long sign in the darkness or a sudden squall of laughter in the days of endless calm, when not one wind would blow through the sails of ships stuck at the far horizon, when not one cloud would move. His brother's watch was surely that which ticked on and on, even like Mr. Spitzer's own heart beating, pulsing in the darkness, for surely it was not he who had shattered time by jumping headlong at the time with screaming stars, and he could have made no such great mistake. His brother's watch had been an excellent timepiece for clocking the horses, long jumps over waterfalls, Mr. Spitzer sometimes timing now the great breakers, breakers coming in with their foaming manes and tails, the great mollusk horses with their flanks gleaming through tides and foams as he thought of the long horse race of life. These foaming horses and foaming manes and tails and cloud-streaked sands when they withdrew. The salt cracked and barren like a great cranium exposed, or covered with moon jelly combs reflecting the horses streaming through moonlit clouds. This was his egalitarian elegaic music in memory of his brother. It was an excellent watch for timing Mr. Spitzer's eternal music and the music of the dying wind. He must allow, of course, for the inaccuracy of the wearer, the fact that a watch has a tendency to be influenced by the beating of the pulse, whether slow or fast, and this old watch was sometimes slow, though still probably more accurate than the sundials in the windy gardens, particularly when they were shadowed by the wings of birds. He, Joachim, the survivor of his own sad heart, had died a thousand deaths, from none of which he had suffered any mortal injury but to his spiritual peace, as he would say, that only in retrospect when someone else had tactlessly reminded him of it, his perfect corpulent dignity and external elegance of appearance being in no way ruffled by an irrational event. He should have been apologetic, but he was proud that he had walked through a wall of invisible glass, doing great harm, no doubt, to the wall, but none in the last analysis to him, and he was proud that the old desk clerk had insisted that he was dead, as Mr. Spitzer would recall, chuckling softly, thinking of the joke he had played. The preservation of his dignity was now, however, all that remained for him in life, or so it often seemed to him. 
There was probably nothing he feared so much as the loss of his dignity, that he might seem ridiculous in other people's eyes. He wished to make, of course, a good impression, and yet there were innumerable unimportant instances when he came near to losing his external dignity or bravado, and everybody knows, as he himself must cautiously admit, that there is nothing funnier than a fat man slipping on a banana peel. He, of course, was always busy losing weight, even as he gained it, and he feared his elephantine over Dupois' size, the vast area of his response to life. He feared the icy pavements, the polished floors reflecting his image, the crystalline glare of the sky when half the sky is in darkness, and these loud noises ringing in his dead or deafened ear, which often confused him, disturbing his own sense of order and justice. There was always this discord of the tone or the tones held over, confusing the simplicity of his arrangement. There was always the holding over of one or more tones of a chord into the following chord, a blurring of effects which produced, with every new moment, terrible discord, the suspension of the concord which he had expected. He was always being caught ponderously in a revolving door. He was always being caught between two headlong traffic streams, perhaps those of some other year, always crossing the street or avenue just when the red light turned to green. Even as my mother had supposed, the signal lights were all wrong, undependable, and he had reached the wrong city. A mere stranger once had tapped him on the elbows who was crossing a crowded thoroughfare and asked him if he wanted to die. And when Mr. Spitzer had doubtfully replied in the negative, at the same time shaking his head in the affirmative, then had escorted him through a maze of traffic, the cars and trains which had seemed to come from all directions, blowing their traffic horns and whistles as perhaps of some other year or day.